You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romamu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. curious scene at the end of Parshat Mishpatim. After a litany of law codes, there's a coda to Revelation, a quiet coda to last week's thunderous Revelation. Vaya'al Moshe Aharon, Moshe climbs partway up the mountain, accompanied by Aaron, Aaron's sons Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders. They stop. They see the God of Israel, and they eat and drink. That's not at all what we think of when we think of Sinai. No fire, no shofarot, no clouds of smoke and quaking mountains. Just Moshe, Aaron, and his sons, and 70 lucky elders. They see God, and they sit down for lunch. (laughs) You see God, you have lunch. (laughs) But what did they see? No one's allowed to see God and live. Moshe will nestle in the crag of a rock so as not to see the divine presence. Last week, the Israelites shivered inside of a holding pen, lest they get too close and spy God's image. So what do these elders see in this Revelation coda? Vayiru et Elohei Yisrael v'tachat raglav k'ma'ase livnat hasapir k'etzem hashamayim latohar. They saw the God of Israel, and under, under God's feet, was like a fashioning of Livnat Hasapir, 
something, something sapphire, and like the center of the sky for purity. A lot of people have lost a lot of sleep trying to figure out how to translate Livnatas up here. For 12th century commentator Ibn Ezra, this Livnatas up here is a sculpted sapphire looking glass, a prism through which we all, which everyone present sees deeply. Everyone who is present and sees through this looking glass will experience prophecy. Some time ago, I went to an exhibit of the otherworldly glassblower and sculptor, Dale Chihuly. I don't know if anyone here, you know. It was beyond magical. Each room resounded with color, movement, whimsy. It felt like an alternate underwater universe. I was almost at the point of color saturation, and then I walked into a seemingly empty, nondescript room. I looked around and saw everyone else standing with their necks craned, their heads back, and their jaws dropped. I followed their gaze and I looked up. And through a ceiling of pure glass, we peered into a magical world of blue and green, all shapes layered on top of each other, zero gravity prisms and kaleidoscopes of color. It was like we were observing revelation through the prism of a glass ceiling, a lens outside of our own eyes, a lens that itself became part of the creative process. So I imagine our 70 elders, Aaron and Moshe, perhaps they too look up, they cock their, their necks back, they look, and through a sapphire-tinted prism of Livnatasa Pir and Aspaklaria, they catch a glimpse of what they never could see with their naked eye. In our tradition, this aspaklaria is a lens through which we perceive divine presence, through which we filter holiness in the world around us. According to a midrash in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, there are a select few among us who walk around with an aspaklaria me'ira, with an illuminated lens, while most of us, we peer through a glass darkly, carrying an unlit lens through, we, through which we perceive very little on the other side. What lens are you carrying right now? Is it lit from within? Does it magnify depth and texture? the kadoshness, the holiness of the world around you? Or is it more like the window of a subway car? <laughs> Dull with a somewhat green hue. Does your aspaklaria need reframing? Or maybe a plant-based Windex treatment? <laughs> but Rashi, Rashi, he defines Livnatas appear not as a prism, but as a heavenly sapphire brick. Levena brick, Livnatas appear, sapphire brick. The 70 elders look up and behold a sky sized sapphire brick. Why brick? 
This is the ultimate symbol of the bondage and suffering that we endured in Egypt. The bricks we formed in servitude were foraged, the bricks that we foraged where we foraged for the straw, bricks we carried and laid to build pyramids, bricks which, according to our midrash, Israelite men, women, and children were crushed to death in between them. For Rashi, God places this brick, Negdotamid, before the divine self always as a reminder, front and center of our bondage, to never forget the suffering of God's people. This is the God of compassion. But for many of us growing up post-Holocaust and even some of us pre-Holocaust, this reminder of suffering has been all too front and center in our narrative. So perhaps, perhaps this Livnatas up here might serve as a different kind of reminder, a revelation of the possibility of transformation. The brick that was once mud and straw, the weight that drained all of our life force, crushed us under its pressure, now appears before us weightless, gleaming, expansive, and pure as the sky. So what does it take for us to transform a personal or collective narrative or suffering? Personal, sorry, let's try that again. It's not good to write it out. Rabbi David, okay. (laughs) What will it take us to transform a personal or collective narrative of suffering or fear? A few weeks ago, I was in a workshop with a wise and inspiring teacher, Rabbi Miriam Margols. This was part of a conference on Jewish leadership with people across denominations, practice, politics, etc. And the workshop focused on externalizing and transforming fear. All kinds of fear, from universal to particular, real and imagined, first and third world. You name it, we feared it. So each of us conjured up a movement and a sound embodying a deep, visceral fear. Okay, mine was this. (laughs) Did anyone else feel afraid? Because that brings up a lot. But that was our beginning. From there, we cultivated the energetic opposite of that fear, a counter-movement. So this (laughs) turned into this, (gasps) turned into this. And we kept repeating the cycle of going back to the fear and then releasing it through the counter movement. And it was really incredible because each time I returned to the fear, the grip of it loosened and it transformed into a spacious, playful antidote. It reminded me that even an unwieldy brick can morph into a weightless gem. In the past few months, I've had the opportunity to learn with Pamela Takif about young who's in our community, about young women in New York City who are victims of sex trafficking, many from the age of 12. We began a class at Romamu last night, raising awareness in our community. Pamela has spoken of the almost insurmountable challenge 
of getting these girls out of this world because their narrative is literally branded on their skin. Names of their pimps telling them they are worthless without them. But there's an organization, interestingly called GEMS, Girls Educational and Mentoring Services. And they're dedicated exclusively to these girls and young women, to transforming their narrative of worthlessness and shame to one of worth and hope. I hear the words from Hallel, Eben Masu Habonim Haitala Rosh Pina. The rock that was cast away by the workers has been raised up as the cornerstone. As we go out on this Shabbat Mishpatim, I bless us to carry two props in our hands, borrowed from Livnat Hasapir. A bright, clear lens with which to perceive depth, texture, and holiness, and a transmutable brick to remind us to turn mud and straw into sapphire. Please rise.